Hello there, and welcome to the Workplace Communication Podcast, a podcast dedicated to leaders who want to elevate team performance by refining leadership communication skills. And now, let's dive right in with your host, Lindsay LaPaquette. Welcome back again, everyone, to another episode of the Workplace Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay LaPaquette. And today we're going to be talking with Kelly Deals about feminist marketing practices that promote equity and justice. Now, Kelly is a feminist marketing consultant. She helps feminist entrepreneurs and organizations make money and justice. She's worked with New York Times bestselling authors, national and international feminist organizations, and thousands of online entrepreneurs. The culture-making leaders she works with are using their lives and resources to build a future in which all flourish. So Kelly, I'm so excited that you accepted to uh, to meet with me today. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So I um, came across your website when Michelle Auerbach, who has um, done a previous podcast episode on the life-saving skill of story with me, uh, introduced me to you. And I opened your website the night I interviewed her, you know, thinking I'll just take a quick peek. And I spent maybe three hours reading everything, sending it to my sister and all these people I knew because um, your work just spoke to the, the core of me. And you, on your website, you talk about um, helping entrepreneurs and organizations bake their beliefs into their business practices. And you work with culture makers. So I kind of want to start there having you describe to us what you mean by that that term culture maker. So every human is, in fact, a culture maker. And what I mean by that is if we all disappeared tomorrow, there would be no more culture. So often when we're thinking about culture and we're thinking about power, we think that culture is something that happens to us and it's out there and it's bigger than us, but it actually reproduces through us. So like I said, if we all disappeared, there is no more culture, which means not only does culture shape us, but we have the power to shape it. And in fact, we are shaping it every day, whether we know that we are or not. So if something, if someone says something Um, hurtful or horrifying to me, and I let it go, that was culture making. That was like a tiny agreement that you and I made that I let it go. That's culture making. And so what we are or are not doing is always culture making. The trick is to know that you have the power to shape culture, that you have the power to shape the arena and environments around you, and to do something deliberately about that. Mm, that it speaks so much, I think, to the core of the work that I do, which is in communication. So the the example you just described is is exactly, um, you know, kind of what I work with people to do to recognize those moments in which they they do have a voice to speak up and um, navigate the situation differently, and how that influences how those patterns continue. Um, so I, I guess maybe to just to give it some context, can you talk to us a little bit about how you got into this work because it feels like such a an amazing niche space. I'm curious how you evolved into this. So, I mean, I have just always been a feminist. I think I became a feminist when I was 11 and discovered my first copy of Ms. Magazine at the library and like read it and was like, oh my goodness, this is my life. So I've always (laughs) been a feminist. And 
at the same time, when I came out in out of university into the corporate world, you know, having had all the success in the academic world, I had high expectations for what was going to happen in my career and was really grappling with how I had to turn off half of my personality in order to be present at work or how I had to leave half of myself behind to navigate the corporate workspace. And I was really like stunned and astonished at at how there weren't opportunities for me to do good and useful work, that there was like this I showed up as a woman and I got treated as a woman. I was the one who was making arrangements for meetings, but not listened to when I spoke up at meetings, you know, and I saw in my corporate workplaces that women in particular were doing a lot of the work for teams to gel, but weren't getting recognized as leaders. And doing that kind of work to make teams gel and to facilitate and cultivate team members is leadership. And so I was just seeing like gender dynamics play out in the workplace and really limiting women and anyone with a marginalized identity, even as it needed our skills and contributions. And so I was grappling with that myself. And then I came to sort of a a rupture point or a tipping point where I had my last baby and it just wasn't going to work for me to be in the corporate space anymore because I was never going to get promoted if I had to leave every day at five o'clock to go pick up the kids at daycare. And I knew it. And so I was like, do I stay here knowing that I'm going to go nowhere because I have actual responsibilities and I have to leave at 5 p.m.? Or do I go to out on my own and do things on my own terms? And I wish that wasn't the choice that I had to make. I wish that our corporate spaces could organize themselves so that like the essential work of life can actually coincide with having a career. And I think we're seeing that be acute right now in the middle of an, a, a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I wasn't in corporate spaces, but I had a very similar experience and it also led to me leaving. So I worked in in, in public health care and education, but it, that was the impetus for me too, right? Seeing that the, the needs of the whole person, it was just incompatible in a way that um, allows you to lead a life that um, isn't just running around stressed all the time. And so, um, and so how did that then kind of morph into, um, your female empowerment, sorry, female lifestyle empowerment brand. So this is what you're known for. Um, this is what, when I fell on your website, I was like, Oh, this is, this is all the things I've been feeling and resisting, but couldn't quite figure out exactly why. So, um, maybe let's start with, can you define what the female lifestyle empowerment brand is? Sure. So it might actually sound like it's a positive thing, but it's really not. So the female lifestyle empowerment brand sounds like something like we should say like, yay, you go girl. And that's sort of the feeling that those words evoke. But what I'm talking about when I'm saying the female lifestyle empowerment brand is that there is this image of success for women in all of our heads and it is fundamentally limiting. So if you and I closed our eyes right now and said, huh, what does success look like for women? And we try to envision that woman. I am willing to bet that almost the same image pops into all of our heads and it's basically career Barbie. And then (laughs) 
how many of us are that person? How many of us are career Barbie? And then we look out in the world to like leaders teaching women how to be successful in entrepreneurial spaces or career spaces. And they look like career Barbie and they are giving us advice. And it seems like if we just follow their exact example, we can be successful. But what if their exact example, what if the lever that is making them very successful is being white is being thin, is being pretty, is being like heterosexy, but not too sexy. What if those are the backstop for their career strategies? And what if we can't be those things? So a black woman cannot be white career Barbie. A fat woman cannot be white career Barbie. A disabled person cannot be white career Barbie. So are those success formulas that those people are teaching us, are they going to work when we don't have those characteristics to animate them? So that's my concern is those paths to power are fundamentally exclusive and they're not going to work with people who have visibly different identities. And I want us to have paths to power and success and contribution and leadership that are actually usable and doable by people with multiple identities. Hmm. Yeah. And, and the other thing that concerns me with that too, is how then a lack of being able to implement that the strategies on that path is often turned as the person's fault. Oh, right. Oh. And so you're not, you're not, you're just not motivated enough. You're trying, I have, I have five kids and I've accomplished all this. Why can't you do this? And, and that um, just, yeah, it really, really gets under my skin how much um, criticism, I suppose, and blame and judgment are used as uh, the excuse, the reason for why we're marginalized problem like we're the, the the fundamentally our culture thinks that women are a problem to be fixed that bipoc folks are a problem to be fixed that queer folks are a problem to fix and the problem is that we are not white men and we are not able to show up in that way that the system is built for for the people with those identities that doesn't mean white men have done anything wrong it means that there is a system that has been constructed that works for a particular kind of experience. Even the workplace that we're talking about, it is built for someone who has a caretaker at home taking care of the essential survival work that that needs to be handled in any home. So those of us who don't have a person doing that for us are at a disadvantage in a workplace that expects you to have that. So my tipping point when I realized the female lifestyle empowerment brand was a thing and it wasn't going to work for me was after I had my last baby and I was decided to restart my, my business, to leave the workforce, restart my business. And I was looking around at all the advice from all the women entrepreneurs and I started blaming myself. I started thinking, wow, I am not productive. I cannot get this done. Look at this person over here running this seven-figure business in high heels, being flawless, and like I'm having a trouble having a shower two days in a row. And what is wrong with me? And I'm look then I sort of sat back and looked at my life and I was like, okay, so I have four children at home. One of them is a newborn with colic. My partner works out of town all the time. I have um, a relative visiting who's recovering from a trauma. And I can't figure out why I can't launch my business. Huh, what's going on here? I must not be very organized. It was, You're obviously not working hard enough. Right. But <laughs> what I, honestly, I blamed myself so seriously that one morning at 4 a.m. by the blue light of the phone, I'm nursing my baby 
by the phone, reading how to be more productive hacks on Facebook, right? Reading the advice. And I read some advice from this guy talking about deep work and how he gets up at 4am and he does this, this, and this. And I'm like, I am up at 4am. Breastfeeding. (laughs) What do you have for me now? He mapped out his morning routine and his morning routine was like, meditate, you know, eat a breakfast, go to the gym, da, 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 da. Meanwhile, he has three toddlers. How are they getting to school? Who's feeding them? Right. So that productivity narrative that makes us think that we're the problem presupposes that somebody else is taking care of some, all the things that we need to survive. And nobody is taking care of those needs for me. So I was blaming myself for like a cultural phenomenon. If women are chronically exhausted, overwhelmed, and shouldering all of the emotional and survival work that goes into living, that's a collective problem. That's not me not being productive. I am actually incredibly reproductive and productive. I am not failing at using my time management appropriately. My culture is failing me. And it's not just me. So we have to not blame ourselves for that. We need to know what the actual problem is that we're trying to solve. Yeah. It's not just you because I think probably any woman listening to this can identify with this, right? I mean, I've been a mom for long enough to be in enough mom circles to know that these thoughts run through, I don't want to say everyone's head, but certainly a lot of people. And so can we maybe get into a bit of the uh, details around how marketing reinforces these types of messages because one of the takeaways I'd like to have for you know businesses or people working in marketing is to reflect on is this what I'm really wanting to do and I'm going to say that I hope you're going to say no <laughs> after listening to Kelly and then you know so so can you kind of give me um like I said tell me how this plays out concretely in marketing Sure. So when we talk about marketing, usually we think we're talking about messages. We think we're talking about like commercials and advertisements, but I want to roll it like five steps earlier before we even get to the part where we're creating advertisements or marketing funnels or any of those things. And I want us to think about our basic like business practice decisions that happen before we even start talking about the thing we're trying to sell. So in my world, I work with a lot of people who are leaders, who are educators, who are teachers, who are coaches, and they do a lot of consulting or educating work. And they usually do it to individuals. So um, they are marketing to individuals. Usually they are marketing to women and they have these programs that you can go and learn how to do something. Let's say get a certification in yoga or something like that. You're going to go get a certification in some kind of career skill. The program, let's say the program costs $10,000 to take this one year program to get a certification in, let's say, project management or yoga training or something. And it's primarily aimed at women or people who have marginalized identities. And then in order to make this accessible, they offer a payment plan. This is all great. Offer a payment plan that does make it more accessible. But what they do, and they are trained to do by female lifestyle empowerment brands, is automatically tack on a 25% surcharge if you use the payment plan rather than paying in full. So what has just happened is the we, the people making those kinds of decisions, making that a normal business practice to charge a 25% surcharge, have downloaded financial injustice onto the people we serve. So that was a business decision to add a 25% surcharge for accessing a payment plan. So to the people least able to pay in full, we are charging them more. 
that's just textbook financial injustice. So that is a, a decision that was built into a marketing funnel. And I want us to take a look at that root decision, that root business practice. Like another marketing practice that comes out is um, when it's a very simple and common thing, but on our, on our websites, we have a place for people to sign up to get a newsletter. Now, only marketers and online entrepreneurs know that when you sign up to a newsletter that you are going to be marketed to. That's actually not common knowledge. So if we think that one of the hallmarks of injustice and oppression and rape culture is overriding consent or not taking people's consent seriously, offering someone a free gift to sign up to a newsletter without disclosing to them that they are now going to be marketed to is an abuse of consent. And so that reinforces uh, a rape culture where we have to override consent for that to function. So if we value consent, we need to build it into all the stages of our marketing. And then the argument against that, against that is like, well, that might reduce conversions. Well, if you bring more eyeballs onto your page and you have other ways of engaging, in fact, you're going to end up with more dedicated clients. So just because there's like that um, might slightly reduce conversions doesn't mean that that's a legitimate way, reason to do a thing, right? Like robbing a bank might make me richer. It doesn't mean that I go do it. So I was just thinking that with your analogy to rape culture, like, yeah, maybe you'll you'll have less sex from raping fewer people, but that is by no means a justifiable reason right. to rape people, right? I absolutely see the parallels. Right. And, and you're... Your piece on payment plans, um, you know, it's just something I had learned, right? Offer a discount, get people to pay faster, more cash flow, had never really stopped to reflect on, oh, wow, exactly what you described. The people who have more marginalized identities, who have less access to cash flow, are then paying more for the program. And that doesn't sit well with my values in the slightest. And so immediately in reading right. your work, I thought, oh, wow, this is something I need to change because it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with, um, the way I want to treat people in the world. Um, and, and so I, I guess another piece that I'd um, like to get into is in terms of the, the messaging, I guess, around um, you. Uh, so you talk in your work about using status and authority and scarcity as triggers, mental triggers to, to uh, you know, move people to action. And I have... Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but just, I guess, intuitively um, felt that that was not something I loved uh, with my own work. And so I would go to workshops or whatnot and I'd integrate some pieces and there were always pieces that I kind of wasn't as comfortable with, but, but really saw it as my own resistance, right? Versus, oh, I'm resisting this because, you know, I don't like um, using this uh, manipulation, I guess, on people. And in fact, the day before Michelle introduced you to me, I had put a post up on LinkedIn saying, um, I might regret this, but I'm going to give you the key to massive, massive success that you can implement in your sleep. Seriously, who actually buys this crap? And then I go on to say a few more things. And at the end I said, um, and don't keep throwing your money at people who promise you unicorns and rainbows. And when I read your website, I was like, oh, this is why I really hate this. And you get deeper into it, but it made me understand why these formulas don't speak to me. But I think there's a lot of people using them who aren't 
aware that they are. So can you delve into how we're trained to use this and kind of the, um, what it makes people believe about themselves, I guess? So when I'm thinking about social and mental triggers, I'm informed by a book by Dr. Robert Cialdini called um, Influence. And in that book, he, t- he teaches about persuasion. This is his body of work. And he teaches that there's basically six mental triggers that work on all humans because this is the way humans are. So it's not like some people are uniquely gullible. This works on everybody because everyone who is human reacts in this way. So if you can predict... If you can leverage a trigger, you will be able to predict how pretty much any human will react to that trigger. So in terms of if when humans pick up a sign of scarcity, our survival instincts mean we gather resources. So if we pick up signs that a crop isn't maturing properly, we're going to start squirreling away different sources of food. So as soon as you signal scarcity to humans, their instinct is to gather and hoard resources, to snap things up. So uh, when you're selling something, if you signal that something is in short supply, someone is more likely to grab it. So these social triggers, it seems kind of innocuous, these mental triggers, but in fact, it can be really damaging. So if you think about your signaling scarcity to a group who historically and currently is deprived of resources, you're activating generations of trauma in order to get people to buy your stuff. And if that's the only way that you can get people to buy your stuff, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and take a look at like, what's the value of the object that you're putting out into the world, right? I don't think that we should be leveraging people's trauma or desire to survive in order to buy things. I think there's a better way to do it. Now, there are other social triggers that um, are actually very useful. They help us make quick decisions, which is incredibly important in a world where we are making thousands of micro decisions a day. So anything that saves us that kind of cognitive load is a net benefit and asset to all of us. So the social trigger of um, social, like of, of what other people are doing is useful. So if we are driving on the road and everybody slows to a stop in front of us, it makes sense for us to also slow, even though we can't see down the road and see what's happening. But we can take information about the people in front of us, what they're doing and and do what they're doing and keep ourselves safe. Now, this is useful in a sales decision. And in a low risk decision, that kind of shortcut thinking is useful. So if I'm going to the grocery store and I want to buy yogurt, that's only $3. Buying the most popular yogurt that everyone else is buying is a useful decision and it's a low risk decision. Otherwise, it would take me six weeks to buy groceries. I'm just going to make those shortcut decisions. What is everyone else buying? I'm buying that too. That's useful in low risk decisions. But being guided by the crowd in a decision where there's 20% interest and it's a $40,000 purchase that could bankrupt me, that is a dangerous thing. So when we as sellers and businesses have high risk decisions that we're asking consumers to make, then we need to dial down those social triggers. In low risk decisions, like for toothpaste, it's actually useful to dial up some of those social triggers so people don't have to think too much about those things. But that um, this isn't like hard and fast rules. We have to navigate these things. And we have to understand fundamentally what I'm talking about is understand the impact that we are having on the world around us. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess responsibility for it, right? And, I, and so, and I guess not intentionally using them to manipulate people into doing things that aren't in their best interests is kind right. of the takeaway, right? Um, inform people, 
Right. And so how does somebody working within an organization, so I've spoken to people in marketing who say, I'm aware of these things. And also I'm navigating working within an organization where they know this brings in business. And, you know, yes, obviously people can go and start their own business, but not everyone wants to do that. And so do you have tips for people who are navigating these dynamics in the workplace, trying to make their marketing, their company's marketing feel um, more in alignment with their values when the business may not share those values? So it's very strange that we think about businesses almost as people because businesses are composed of other people. So other people also have values, presumably. Not everyone is just an amoral psychopath, right? And most of the people that we encounter in our day-to-day lives are not amoral psychopaths, right? So we are able to influence people around us. So that's where we like go to research. That's where we go to our relationships and our histories of success and our trust. And we leverage those things to get people to take chances on new things. So there is research, for example, by the Center for Community Change that says traditional marketing uses pain points. It makes you feel terrible. It agitates those pain points in order for you to then get peace by buying something to get out of that pain, right? That's traditional marketing. Um, That's traditional copywriting. You agitate a problem, you press on a pain point, and then someone buys something. But the Center for Community Research has done some research and actually tested messages that if you started with shared values and vision rather than pain points, and then told people exactly what's causing the problem, and it's not them, it's something else, then they were more likely to take some kind of concrete action. So if you get people out of shame and into power, out of shame and into vision, they are more likely to take action and do whatever your call to action is. So pain points are the traditional way, but there is a research suggesting that starting with possibility, imagination, and shared values is actually more effective. So you can Go to research and bring that to your meeting. Like, okay, we usually tell people you are broke, fat, stupid, and ugly and make them feel terrible so that they spend $2,000. But this research says that if we can get them into a feeling state of what's possible for them and what our shared values are and how the thing getting in the way of that isn't actually them, but some other problem, now they're in a place of power and they're willing to take action to solve that problem. And that is going to work. And I can even give you um, just an anecdote from yesterday. I was in a meeting and two of my clients are actually in a business relationship with each other. And one of my clients shared that the feminist copywriter who she hired, who learned her methodology from me, when she used her work, she got a 25% conversion rate on an email. Now, anyone in the marketing world knows that that is bananas, like 3% is a good conversion rate. 10% is extraordinary. And here is one of my clients using feminist copywriting that starts with vision and, and shared values rather than pain point. And she got a 25% conversion rate. And not only did she get a 25% conversion rate, she got nearly double the actual spend per conversion. So we have this narrative that doing good and building justice and caring about our clients doing that costs us money. It's not in fact necessarily the case. And I would guess long-term, so the parallels I'm making are in my work where, you know, putting people at the center of your business, there's also that argument, right? But that costs too much money and it 
But the reality is, maybe if you measure it over one quarter, that might be true if you're investing in in developing, you know, a more people-centered culture. However, if, and I'm not even sure that's true. However, if you measure it over the lifespan of your business, that's a whole different story. And so I'm guessing with what you're saying, even with these marketing techniques, right, I've bought things where even sometimes I'm consciously aware that they are triggering scarcity in me, and yet I still go ahead and buy them, right? (laughs) And But then what happens after the fact is we have buyer's remorse because we feel manipulated and we realize we didn't need that thing. And so I can see even where, you know, you're talking about even the short-term gains of it uh, potentially, but I can see that long-term relationship uh, side of it being um, so much more sustainable. And then, you know, also it just being to me the right thing to do. And I'm not really somebody that talks about things, you know, I'm not very much a should person. Um, or right and wrong. Um, but on a justice level, I kind of am. This is there too, right? Like justice and inclusion often gets segregated out to this like thing that we do when it's easy or convenient or we can, or like it's a luxury, but actually it's a fundamental business case. There's a fundamental business case here. We know as any, anyone in the sales or marketing business knows it is much easier and much more cost effective to repeat sell to one client across years than to bring in new clients. That's why we, we calculate what do we have to spend to bring in a new client? And often it's a lot. And what do we need to spend to keep a client and remarket to them? It is also always cheaper and more effective to keep clients across time. It's very expensive to acquire a client. So even what we're talking about, about like actually centering our clients and not abusing them, it, there's a business, like there's a justice case for that, obviously. Right? <laughs> That's really important. There's also a business case. Your business will be more successful if your business is relationship-based. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you entirely. It's it's absolutely what I'm, what I'm working on, what I'm working on too on a different level. Um, so I guess the the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, the, the zooming in and out between the individual. I don't know how to say this. So the individual and the societal level, right? That interplay between because I know in my life I've gone through phases of feeling you know where the system, for lack of a better way of saying it, is so difficult to change and feeling, you know, not having uh, the power, for lack of a better word, to really affect meaningful change and then moving more into a space of feeling like, yes, if we all step into this. And But there is definitely an interplay, I find, between that individual and societal level. And so how do you, I don't even know exactly my, what my question is here, but can you talk maybe a bit about that uh, interaction? Right. So I I call that toggling, right? When you're zooming in and you're zooming out, it's like you're toggling back and forth between two windows opening on your computer. So one, you have your personal experience and you're taking things in. And often that's going to land on cultural conditioning that tells you you're a problem. So something's happening, you take it in and maybe you feel a source of shame, like, oh my gosh, I'm not productive with my time. I need to get more organized. And you're feeling bad and you're going down the rabbit hole and you're reading things by the light of your phone at 4am. And nothing's happening. And then... You can get out of that if you zoom out, if you toggle out to a different source of information and you're like, okay, so why is this happening to me? What it is about my identity and my interplay with society that is making this happen to me and people like me. And then when you look at that, I'm like, oh my goodness, this isn't my fault. This has been rigged. Anyone in my position, this is happening to. Suddenly what happened? You're out of shame. 
your inner power. And you're, you realize like, oh, if I keep going along with this, I'm going to get more of the same because that's the way this system is designed. This is the outcome it's just designed to produce. So that's when you're like, well, I'm going to diverge. This is not okay with me. I'm not going to accept this. And I am going to diverge from this conditioning and from these rules and do something different so that I get a different outcome. That source of creativity is a massive source of power in your personal life and in your corporate life. Anywhere where creativity and unique solutions and inventive ideas are a source of money and power, that kind of thinking is an asset. So if you bring that kind of thinking to your corporate workplace or to your business, you are going to do novel and interesting things that are going to set you apart from other people in your industry. So these are sources of power and being able to toggle out between those two things are sources of power in your life. Now, it can be overwhelming when you look at the system and you're like, wow, the system is rigged. I cannot win this game. I am just one person and that's a tidal wave. But that's where even, for example, at your workplace, what you want to do is build relationships so that there's a group of you who can steward a change forward. It is very easy for one person to get picked off. It is very easy for one person to get overwhelmed and get tired. But when there's a group of us trying to do something, it's not so easy to stem that tide. So what we want to do is be able to toggle, but we also want to be in relationship with other people trying to do the same kinds of things that we're doing so that we're reinforcing each other, so that we're fortifying each other. And so that even we have a little bit of like collective team influence. So in addition to toggling, we need relationships with other people. We need networks, we need communities, we need friendships. And, you know, we need to leverage that to make the kinds of changes we want. It's not all on one person. It's on all of us. And no one person can change it. And at the same time, you also don't have to tolerate it. Mm, That was the most beautiful description. Uh, Because I think I think it's it is easy to get stuck in the overwhelm. I mean, I still have moments now, right, where I um, just shake my head at where we are in the world and think, how, you know, how can how can we still be here and 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 how is this going to change? And I think you put it perfectly when it's zooming back into what what steps can I take, what actions can I take, how am I contributing to this, how can I learn more about what I'm contributing, um, and like you said, building that community. I think you know we have a fairly individualistic uh, culture in North America, and um, compared to you know s- some other cultures, and and I don't even want to put North America as a culture because it you know there's lots of variation within there. Um, but I, I can see where finding other people who, um, are trying to affect the same change is a, is a huge source of power. It's also relationships. So I remember reading in Adam Grant's book, The Originals, he was writing about a a black woman who worked at the Department for National Defense. And I think she wanted to do something very early in the days of internet, like, have some sort of system where different intelligence agencies could share information instead of having silos of information. And she really pushed hard on this project. She was brand new in her career. She pushed hard on this project and she got slapped down and in fact got demoted and moved to a different like department and it didn't go well for her. And what she did was she spent the next several years growing her relationships at the organization so that she had champions, so that she had mentors, so that she had a whole history of trust and success, so that when she wanted to advance this idea again, this time she had 
a backstop of support. She had believers and champions and relationships and mentors who were willing to get behind her to make this project happen. And she did, in fact, make it happen the second time around. It took eight years of relationship building and trust building and power building to make that happen. So it's it's not only that we join like like-minded political institutions. That's that's great. Let's do that. It's also cultivate those relationships at work. If you want to make something happen, no one pushes the rock up the hill by themselves. It's a recipe for getting crushed by the rock. You have mm-hmm. to have other people rolling it up there with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And um, oh goodness, I had something that I wanted to touch on here, and it's gone. Uh, anyhow, it's it's out of my head for now. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I guess on that I could offer on that. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so another thing that can help with this is understanding the best use of your skills. We all have a unique set of talents and skills and something that we can do really well. I don't have a head for logistics. Putting me in charge of like the revolutions accounts or organizing the dinner for all the freedom fighters, we are going to suffer. That is a bad use of my skills. I will wreck everything. But putting me in charge of the propaganda would be an excellent idea, right? So we want to, instead of getting overwhelmed by how much need there is, understand that there's a whole bunch of us with a whole bunch of different skills. And together we have enough. Together we have everything we need. And then I don't have to plan the dinner. I can just plan the posters, and someone else will plan the dinner and doesn't have to be co-opted into writing copy. So whatever the best use of your contribution and skills are, double down on that. Offer that thing. Make sure you're positioned at work to do that thing. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. And so and my thought came back and, and the what I'd been reflecting on as you were speaking earlier was about how um, it, it really is also about the long game, right? And so you know, when you were talking about uh, the building relationships, like for me pushing, uh, I was going to say pushing through resistance, that's not the right way to say it. Um, But being able to shift thinking when there is difference of opinion, it takes a certain level of relationship before people, there's a, you need trust amongst people before um, we will really reflect often on, on, perspectives that are vastly different from our own. And so I think viewing that long game as the 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 plan for change is um, a key to not getting stuck in that, that overwhelm. Right. You're so right, Lindsay, because has any of us been converted to any new way of thinking in one conversation, especially when we are under like attack or on the defense? No. But across three years of reading books and hearing different viewpoints and being influenced by someone you trust, you might come around to a whole new way of thinking. I know that's definitely happened for me on a number of things. So time is the game. Yeah. Yeah. So um, listen, I uh, could keep you on here for hours. I uh, love everything you do. So I I just will um, do want to read two lines from your website just to entice everyone over to uh, not just take a peek, but really dig deep and um, read through Kelly's blog post, really learn about the work she's doing. So um, what really stood out to me in in first visiting your website were uh, the following lines. So you, you say, we learn that if we want to be successful, we're going to have to swallow our principles, hide who we are, and fit into the system. If I'm in a meeting worrying about other people's biases, I have less space in my own head. So I don't think that's a, um, an exact quote, um, but you're talking about how you have less space in your own head if we're showing up 
um, if we're in it in this position of um, feeling like we have to hide who we really are to fit into the system, and I think today you've given us lots of uh, lots of food for thought around um, how that does not have to be the case. Uh, how companies can look at their marketing practices and really reflect on whether they are inadvertently perhaps sharing these messages um, and and whether or not that actually fits with the the company values. Um, I would love for you to share a little bit about your Sunday love letter because uh, it is amazing to read. Thank you so much. You know, I, my Sunday love letter is one of the things I'm most proud of in my whole body of work. I have been writing this for 10 years. So every Sunday I send a newsletter and it is a chewy, thoughtful thing. It's usually a couple of thousand words. It's usually a story and a chewy essay that helps us think about our lives, our power, our culture, and then the practices, our business practices that come from that like interplay. And I love writing them. I spend a lot of time writing them. And there are people who have been subscribed for a decade. And it's, I send them out because it's one of my contributions and I want to fortify us and encourage us and get us into places where we are in power, making amazing things happen. And that's what the Sunday love letter is about. That, that is everything I feel in, in reading it. And so I really encourage people to, to pop on over to your website. Uh, I will leave a link to Kelly's website, uh, well, to the, to the Sunday love letter specifically in the show notes. And so you can go on over and uh, really encourage you to subscribe because it will challenge you to think very critically about uh, your own business practices and marketing practices. So thank you, Kelly. I really uh, appreciate your time coming on here today to share all of this with us. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone who's given us their time and attention. It's truly a gift and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And uh, we will see everyone back again next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Workplace Communication Podcast with Lindsay LaPaquette. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share and also leave a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. If your organization is looking to invest in elevating team performance by refining leadership communication skills, you can find more information about Lindsay's coaching, speaking, and consulting by visiting lindsaylapaquette.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.